0: Thanks, Beck, for reading God's Word to us this morning. I just want to say good morning as well. If you don't know me, my name's Matt, and I'm one of the ministers here as well. It's great that the uh, kids can join us this morning. Um, And uh, like Steve said, there are worksheets at the back for them. Uh, And also, before I begin, I also wanted to just mention that uh, we use slido.com to ask questions using the hashtag HBSP. And so I will uh, get to some of those questions after my sermon. Oftentimes I wonder what it is that frustrates you. What is it that gets you mad, that irritates you more than it should? I'm well aware that the things that frustrate you are most likely different to the things that frustrate me. And so I often wonder, what it is? What are the things that get you worked up? I find it fascinating, the random things that get people worked up. And I can remember one day driving in the car with Ella to church. And it wasn't this church. It was a different church that we were attending. And it was a really hot day. And Ella started getting worked up about the fact that our church did not have air conditioning. And as she as we were driving there, she got more and more worked up, and I think she was expecting me to get worked up about it as well. And finally, she was so worked up she turned to me and she says, Matt, doesn't that bother you? And I, just driving along, turned to her and I said, Really? No, not much bothers me. <laughs> Now, of course, there's plenty of things that bother me, but on that particular day, the fact that our church did not have air conditioning did not bother me. So what is it that bothers you? Is it some little thing? Like when you get a new cereal box and you open it up and the plastic bag, as you open the plastic bag, it rips and tears and is completely unusable. Is that what bothers you? Or possibly when you try and open a -a chuppa-chup, I mean, really, how difficult is it to open a Chuppa Chuck? I mean, maybe that's what bothers you. Or is it other things that are completely out of your control? Is it the way that particular people treat you? Or is it the way that the media seems to twist words or manipulate for their own benefit and to make stories better? Or is it seeing the needs around you, both here in Australia and around the world, people in broken families, the poor and the marginalized? Or is it seeing those that you love being hurt and suffering? Or is it how few people seem to want to know and follow Jesus? So oftentimes I wonder, What is it that frustrates you? On the flip side to that is what is it that encourages you? What is it that comforts you, that brings you so much affection, so much sympathy and love? What is it that completes your joy? Is it seeing and holding a newborn baby? Or is it seeing your kids make wise decisions as they mature into adulthood? Or is it serving others, looking after others, caring for others? Or is it secretly giving someone a gift without them knowing it? What is it that completes your joy? Well, in our passage today, Paul explains to the Philippian church what it is that completes his joy. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, So this morning, I want to pray that we too, as a church here in 2508, could be the means by which others can find joy. So let's pray as I begin. Heavenly Father, give us knowledge and wisdom as we study your word here today. May it land in fertile soil to do the work you have prepared in advance for us. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, quite a few years ago, Ella and I took a trip to Europe. And while we were in Europe, we did things that I was interested in and things that Ella was interested in. Now, one of the things that was on Ella's list of things she wanted to do was visiting a number of art galleries. Ella loves art galleries. But me, on the other hand, I do not. I'm one of those people who goes around, looks around for about five minutes, sees if there's anything there that interests me, and then I look for the comfy lounge bed things that they have in there. And I usually find one of those and go sit there. And I usually say to Ella, I'm done, just let me know when you're ready to leave. And so, while we were in Europe, we went to a number of art galleries, and one of them was the Uffizi Gallery in Florence. The Uffizi is one of the most important and the most visited art galleries in all of Italy. It is the home to some of the world's most priceless artworks. And so, as we were visiting this gallery, I did what I did do oftentimes in art galleries, which is try to figure out how I can get in and out as quickly as possible without making a lamad. It's hard to do, but I give it a go. And so, as we were looking through room after room of seemingly worthless artworks, well, that was in my opinion anyway, I realized that what actually they were doing was that these artworks, the priceless ones, they actually put behind glass. Because there's no possible way that they would let some pe- somebody like me spit on the priceless artwork. And so all the priceless ones are behind glass. And when I realized it, I thought to myself, Aha! I know how to get out of here quicker. And so I turned to Ella. And in my normal voice, which is too loud for an art gallery, I turned over and Ella was over the other side of the room and I said to her, Ella, if it's not behind glass, we are not stopping. (laughs) These pieces of art that were behind the glass... These pictures that have been painted were priceless, even though I only realized it because they were behind glass. And in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, in these verses, Paul paints a picture like none other, a priceless picture that is more precious than anything here in this earth. It is priceless because it is a picture that will last forever. It's priceless because it shows us who Jesus is, his life, his suffering unto death, and how God highly exalts him above every other name. And we see in this picture that Jesus is God. And as God, he humbles himself by becoming obedient the point of death, even death on a cross. And so today, do not be like me in the art gallery. Do not try to find a way to get in and out as quickly as possible. Stop and look at this picture. Reflect on it. Take time to examine these verses. And what we'll find is that Paul wrote them for the sake of the church to equip them to endure hardships, to help them practice real Christian unity in the midst of hard times. It's here to help the church as their mind is reset as citizens of heaven, citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, And that this whole center of this picture is the appeal to Paul to do everything in humility. Just as Jesus Christ, our Lord, humbled himself for us. Now what we find is that Paul's train of thought is this. He says to live and behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the sake of the gospel. And notice Paul's phrase in uh, chapter 1, verse 27. He says, with one mind. And then he repeats this again in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, Complete my joy, By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. The unity of the minds of the Philippian church was of great concern for Paul. Paul wants this church to strive for the same goals, to have the same mindset. In a way, Paul wants them to be frustrated about the same things and also to rejoice in the same things. And the reason this unity of minds is so important for Paul is he knows that their mindset is what ultimately determines their attitude. Their mindset determines their cultural values. It determines their future outlook. And it determines how they value other people. For Paul, if these Christians in Philippi can continue to be united with a mindset of Christ, it would make his joy complete. Now, Paul doesn't say that they must always have the same opinion on every matter, but they must have the same mindset that he spells out for them in verses 3 and 4. Let's read these verses again. Verse 3 Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. And so our mindset must be one of humility. We must count others more significant than ourselves. And this is so unlike the mindset of the world in which we live in, where selfish ambitions and conceit are so prevalent. You don't have to look far to see how selfish ambitions are encouraged, regardless of what it means for others around you. Our society encourages us to climb the ladder of success, regardless of who you trample on while you do it. But as Christians, this must not be our mindset. Jesus himself commands us not only to look at our own interests, but also to the interests of others. And we are to do so with humility. This is the mindset we are called to as the church. Those of us who are in Christ right here and now, We are granted this mindset by Christ. And Paul explains how Jesus humbled himself as an example for us in verse 5. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The picture behind the glass that Paul paints for us now is one of a humble, serving, sacrificial savior. And one of the big questions that's asked in this passage is, what does it mean for Jesus to empty himself? Does Paul suggest that that Jesus became something less than God? Did he empty himself of some aspect of his divinity when he became a human? And I want to point out right here and now that there is no way that I can do justice to this passage in a matter of a few minutes. But it hasn't stopped me before, so I'm going to give it a go right now. So I'm going to try to have a look at this. So, what does it mean for Jesus to empty himself? Now, to start, I want us to realize that oftentimes we skip over the very first part of this passage verse 6 begins with this, who, though he was in the form of God, or in some translations it says, being in very nature God. And Paul begins with stating the fact that Christ was acting in the form of God. Jesus was God. Jesus acted in a way That was entirely consistent with being God. And I think that is a profound thing to reflect on. Because he was in very nature God, he acted consistently with his nature as the Son. God, the Son the person that he was in the Godhead. God is, is, we know that in three, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And they all act in particular ways. And Jesus Christ, in the form of God, acted as the Son. And he did not take equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. And once again, if we look at this passage in more detail, we'll see that there's a footnote that may shed some light onto this passage. When it says, a thing to be grasped, in our footnotes it says it can also be defined as a thing to be held onto for advantage or for his own gain. And this is helpful to us because it means that Jesus did not empty himself of his deity quite the opposite. He acted purely in his role as part of the Godhead, emptying himself of the display of his deity for his personal advantage while he was here in the human form. So Jesus, acting entirely consistent as God, did not use his deity for his own selfish ambitions for his own gain, to puff himself up, to be proud, but rather he emptied himself into the form of a slave so that the perfect, only begotten son of the father in his divinity did not use his godness for his own means, that is to exploit it to his own ends. Consider this. God the Son, in his fullness, acted in one humble act after another. Verse 7. But he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is God the son and this is who we know as Jesus and this is how he is revealed to us in the Bible. A servant a slave who is obedient to his father in every way he served in a way that people's lives were changed because of their encounter with him And Paul says in Philippians, have this mind among yourselves. Have the mind of Christ, which is yours, because you also are in him. And so for us, we too could count our status and our dignity as something for us to hold on to. We can be proud of our achievements, We can weigh up and assess each other's relative strengths and compare ourselves with others, thinking to ourselves, I'm better than that person at that particular thing. I've achieved more than them. And we do this more times than we want to admit. But we need to see others as more significant than ourselves so that we can serve those around us as Christ modeled for us. But even in that, more often than not, we serve others for our own interests. But the reason Paul puts before us here in this passage is that our service in humble obedience is to the Father in order to lead others to salvation, Our service to others is actually for their salvation. And this is because Christ was obedient to the point of death in order that salvation is available to everyone. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but as a Roman citizen, Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. Crucifixion was seen to be so humiliated humiliating, so humiliating, so degrading that no Roman citizen was able to be shamed and dishonored in that way. And remember, Paul here is writing to the church in Philippi who were Roman citizens. Roman culture was a culture based on honor and shame. And Paul's argument here is that believers are not to consider others as holding um, less of a rank, but more so holding a superior rank. And the idea that the Philippian church were to serve one another in humility would have been revolutionary for them. Yet Paul calls them to be like Jesus, not like their culture. Be like Jesus who humbled himself and was obedient to his father to the point of death, even the humiliating death on a cross. And so to follow Christ's example means that just as he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, enabling salvation to those who believe in him, we too are to humble ourselves and be obedient for the salvation of others and this is the mind of god god willingly became a figure of utter humiliation so that his people would be saved so that they may be one day with glory in glory with him And in obedience to our Heavenly Father, we too are meant to humble ourselves to his calling work for the salvation of others. And so this must mean that we must be completely humiliated and dishonored for the sake of others. We need to be prepared that social media and the media in general would point fingers at Christians as it has even this week digging up dirt to use against us. And we should not be surprised when this happens because Christ suffered. And because Christ suffered for our salvation, so too, when we share in his mindset, we can be sure of suffering for it. And so here Christ models humble, sacrificial, Service to others in order to show us his heart and to save those who are lost so that we can have the humility to count others more significant than ourselves for their salvation and we do it because we are no longer citizens of this world our mindset should not be concerned with this world but concerned with our future exaltation. Read with me verse 9. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is found worthy through his crucifixion to be raised by God and exalted to his rightful place as our sovereign king. God the Father is glorified because God the Son has revealed what it means for God to be God. That is for God to be selfless, for God to be humble in service and sacrificially Obedient and to take on the punishment that we deserve in order to bring salvation for those who trust in him. And when Jesus' name is lifted up, God's honor and glory is seen throughout the entire world. And one day, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue can, will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what is remarkable about this is that we also will be exalted because we are united in Christ. And this exaltation that we have to look forward to comes through humility. In Luke, chapter 18, verse 14, Jesus says these words, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. And also in James, chapter 4, verse 10, it says, Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So humility is recognizing who we are before God. The mindset we have is though, even though we are humbled now, our future exaltation will be with Christ for eternity. And so here Paul gives us this marvelous picture of God, God's plan for salvation, a plan that began before the beginning of this world and that will last for eternity. This priceless picture of God is not simply here just for the theological education of this Philippian church. It's here also to equip them and to equip us to endure hardships, to help them and to help us as we practically live in our Christian unity in the midst of adversity. And not only for them to understand their heavenly citizenship, but for us to understand our heavenly citizenship. That we are to be citizens worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the priceless picture that we need to stop and reflect on. Friends, never forget that God's power to save is revealed through humble actions of those who are faithfully serving him and just as God highly exalted Jesus from his humble obedience we too will one day be highly exalted and Paul then encourage the church this church in Philippi he applies this passage for them and as I read these next few verses i hope they will do the same for you i hope they will encourage you as well starting from verse 12 therefore my beloved as you have always obeyed holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be poured out, proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What encouraging words to those who are up to the task. As we work out our salvation we can be assured that we do not do it alone. We do it together and we do it being sustained by God. And here Paul is not talking about us earning our salvation because this would be in contradiction to Paul's whole doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we do not work out our salvation in the sense of accomplishing it, but rather we work out our salvation to see evidence of it in every aspect of our lives. Paul expects those of us who are in Christ now to put in real effort. He says, not only in my presence but more so in my absence, when I am gone, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Selfless, sacrificial service in obedience to Jesus Christ is the one thing that God treasures more than anything else. And so, work it out. Live it out. Shine as lights in this world to the glory of God the Father. And while you do, rejoice with each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, reassure us of your love and help us never to forget that while we were still sinners, you sent your Son to die for us. We were once alienated and hostile in mind. And so we ask that you would give us one mind in Jesus Christ to come to realize that it is by his blood and his death that we are presented to you holy and blameless and above reproach. Help us to work out our salvation and to do it humbly that through it others might come to know and love you more and more. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm going to give you a few minutes now, um, and the band is going to come up and sing. Uh, You might like to ask a question using slido.com.